cast children and everything. Yeah, you could cast children or aspiring theater students. There you go. I don't get it. Hello, everyone. Uh, welcome to I Don't Get It, a podcast about performances in Edmonton. I'm Fonda. I'm Paul, and we are proud to be part of the Alberta Podcast Network, powered, powered by, by ATB. How's it going, Paul? I'm pretty good. I have a coffee in my hand. Feel great? Yeah. How about you? I'm doing great, too. Uh, there was, oh my gosh, it's going to be like a fairly good episode. We saw some cool things this week, and um, and then we have like a bunch of updates to give sure. at the end, um, and maybe even talk a little bit, because we're going to talk, um, Colleen and I, in our Marriage of Figaro review, mm-hmm. we do talk about Edmonton Opera's next season, because oh. that got the leaked to us while we were watching the preview. Um, So uh, maybe we could also talk a little bit about the Citadel season announcement, which just happened. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, Um, cool. But uh, shall we start with uh, the first thing uh, that one of us saw, um, which was you. Uh, You went and saw The Marriage of Figaro. Yes, Edmonton Opera's The Marriage of Figaro with our um, resident opera guest, Colleen Fian, and we'll just, we'll throw to that now. Hello, Colleen. Hi, Fonda. How's it going? Good. Good to be back. Yes, you're back. <laughs> uh-huh. And we're in. We're in. Um, we've we've sneaked into the the specialty parking at the Jubilee. Yes, yes. The Edmonton reserved for Edmonton Opera parking because we just saw um, the media preview of the Marriage of Figaro. Indeed. So give us a little bit of context. Um, whenever I think of Figaro, I actually think of. The Barber of Seville, because there's the famous Figaro song in that one. <laughs> That's right. So um, The Barber of Seville and The Marriage of Figaro are, are both, were both originally based on plays by a famous Viennese playwright, I think he's or French or anyway, European playwright. Um, and uh, Rossini actually can, composed the, the Barber of Seville and Mozart composed the music for The Marriage of Figaro, which is a piece sort of set like 10 years or, you know, about a decade after The Barber of Seville ends. Um, and in it, we have Figaro, who's about to marry Susanna. Um, Susanna is the is the maid for the countess and um, Count Almaviva, Alma who feature in the previous piece. Um, but anyway, so the marriage of Figaro premiered in Vienna in, in 1786. And for those history buffs out there, you'll know that the French Revolution was just kicking off at the same time. Oh, fun times. Oh, yeah. And so the, the, the plot of this piece is highly, is largely making fun of Count Almaviva and sort of taking a poke at um, the, you know, sort of the, the higher class people by the, the servant class. Mm-hmm. And so that obviously at the time was quite touchy. And the original play that this is based on was banned in Vienna because the the monarchy was worried about, you know, about looking bad, about looking bad and getting their heads chopped off. So right. Well, the the count, the character of the count, he was played really wonderfully in this production um, by uh, Philip Addis, who we saw earlier uh, last year in Don Giovanni, yes, or last season. Um, and uh, but so played very wonderfully um, by the actor, but also the character is just like a total. Dick, like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but he had, but but the the actor I found, or sorry, the the singer I I found ha, like had a nice, he acted it quite well. As a, mm-hmm. aside from from nailing the, the the musical performance, I thought he like he had the right tone of it too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Alma Viva and 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 Don Giovanni are similar characters. They're sort of Lotharios that we're not ultimately really cheering for. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> at least kind of, not in this uh, day and age. <laughs> that's right. At least in the Me Too era, for sure, we're not. So yeah. 
Um, so, well, give us give us uh, sort of the the synopsis. How what happens in the marriage of Figaro? Obviously, the marriage of Figaro. But what else? <laughs> well, almost almost yeah. Um, well, there's sort of some doubt as to right off the bat whether or not the marriage will actually occur mm-hmm. because it's kind of fun. All the characters throughout the piece sort of turn, and it's playful in the sense that all the characters kind of turn to the audience and say, "Oh, let's play a trick on this person." And so, mm-hmm. right from the get go, it's like, "Oh, we're all going to play tricks on each other." And Almaviva is trying to seduce um, Susanna, and uh, and ultimately, sort of the, the the quote unquote good people in this play, I think, are the are Figaro, Susanna, who are in love, and then the Countess who wants to earn back the favor of her husband, mm-hmm. the Count. I love the role of the Countess. She has oh, some sure. of the prettiest songs in this, and like, oh my goodness, yeah, she was also really um, the actress did a wonderful job to um, Lara. Kizikiewicz? Oh, I'm, I'm probably not doing that very well. Um, but it's her first show with Edmonton Opera as well. And um, yeah, gosh, I love some of the songs. I also love the songs between the Countess and Susanna. Um, the, uh, par- ter- particularly the one where they're writing the letter to try and fool the Count. Oh my goodness, that was that was just beautiful. Oh, there's a reason that this opera is one of the top, probably top five, top ten out there in the repertoire, because there are so many beautiful arias that come from it um, in many sort of like performances where there's just sort of snippets of opera. You'll have multiple pieces from this that come. There's the very famous Pantalone character of Carabino, who has two beautiful arias as well. But certainly um, the Countess's um, Dove Sono is one of the most famous pieces in, in opera. So mm-hmm. if you're coming and we were sitting there and finding I sort of said, oh, I know this. And I, I imagine that for many people coming, even if you're not an opera buff, you will sit and the opening moments of the opera, you'll be like, oh, wait a minute. I know this one. I've heard this before. <laughs> well, not only is the music a little bit more well known because this is a very frequently produced opera. I was reading early somewhere, maybe Wikipedia. I don't know. But this is one of the most like heavily produced operas in the world, really. Um, and, and to this day still is. So um, but and not only is that the kind of like the the well the well known um, aspects of the music, but it's also just a really enjoyable story. It's very funny. I think yeah. the direction in this was fantastic. Um, Rachel Peak was the director, and uh, I think it's also her debut with um, Edmonton Opera. And yeah, like all of the jokes really landed. All of the slaps also landed pretty <laughs> well. Uh, there's a lot of slapping in the in the, in the last act. Uh, <laughs> out of windows. Yeah. And, well, because we actually so we saw it at the at the the preview, and so there was like school kids that came to see it too and like on many occasions all the kids were laughing which mm-hmm. considering it's in another language so there's subtitles and it's over two hours long is a tall order for a bunch of elementary school kids but they were laughing it up and yeah having they're having time. a great time loving yeah. it um yeah so well when you're you know as as someone who's the sort of the expert the opera you, you know opera um how did you how do you feel this one stood this production stood up to some of the other opera we've seen of late well, it's neat because we've been fortunate enough to see opera in more intimate venues like like at, at Chez Pierre. And those are super fun because you're right there in with the voices. And I thought this one actually did very well because sometimes when you're in a big auditorium and a proscenium stage, um, you lose the, the character and the acting a little bit and you're just more into the music. which Because you've got the symphony and the grandeur and all that stuff. But I thought that actually all of these performers did really well at keeping like keeping the, the feeling in it. Because it mm-hmm. is a funny play. It's part of the opera buffa tradition, which is supposed to be funny comedic opera and so it's supposed to move along and be mm-hmm. you know sort of wink and wink and a uh, nod and all that stuff um maybe it was just the fact that they were the rehearsal but uh one of the one of the singers sort of got off to an awkward start <laughs> but 
but but he I think he recovered very nicely um I uh, the set was lovely it was this big beautiful house that made sense and mm -hmm. and then the last scene there's this beautiful whimsical garden that all the sort of oh, magic yeah. happens at the end and I loved that mm -hmm. um I, I didn't understand the the costuming at all which in an, in an opera like this is actually it's quite of important because everybody's disguising themselves yeah and there's some costume switches too to mm -hmm. fool to to fool mostly the men um the women seem all up and up right like yeah. they know what's going on and um, well, the Countess and Susanna switch costumes at one point, and then there's also the um, Carabino, the pants character, also does some swapping of clothes. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I I thought that the costumes were all right. I quite I like I loved everything that the Countess was wearing, yeah. um, and the and the Susanna's wedding dress was quite nice. It didn't really, uh, yeah, the the costume that they that she was wearing before the wedding dress, I was just like, what it what. But it kind of looked a little bit nursey, but um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, that's the thing. You're right. Like I like were I to be out and about, I probably would put on many of those dresses myself. They were beautiful, and there was the silk red dress that the countess is wearing when she first. And it's important that the countess looks elegant, and mm -hmm. like it's important that we feel for the countess and and mm -hmm. find her to be beautiful and elegant. That's mm -hmm. very important. Otherwise, you don't care um, yeah. about her and Alma Viva, but. Um, but in, in all of the dresses were beautiful, and the 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 um, the costume designer is Sid uh, Negum, who is actually an Alberta-born fashion designer yeah. who is uh, apparently very well, um, uh, who, who's who's achieved success widely. Um, and so yes, I found that a lot of the dresses and outfits were beautiful, but I don't know that they totally made sense for this piece. It seemed. It didn't seem to cohe. There wasn't cohesion that I would have. It wasn't. I wasn't quite sure where the world was supposed to land. I was yeah. like, is this sort of like high fashion Milan? Or and then the countess came out in sort of like a very period dress for the wedding, or, or period shape at least. Um, so yeah. In in any case, I also did. I did really love the costume for. Um, uh, the one who ends up being, you find out in the end, spoiler alert, Figaro's mother. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Her dress was beautiful. As I said, like, all of the dresses were beautiful, and mm. I would probably, like, die to wear some of them. Mm -hmm. But, but it, yeah, it, it didn't sort of, like, help establish sort of, like, what time and place we were supposed to be in, really. No. Um, in or who had relation to who, in what way. Mm -hmm. Because if you think of this piece, it is very much, as you were reading, like, an upstairs-downstairs comedy mm -hmm. where there's the upper class and the lower class and the lower class kind of in the end sort of gets the better of the upper class but mm -hmm. I and usually we we look at, at at clothing often setting the tone as to who is the upper and who is the lower mm -hmm. or whatever and I didn't yeah I just didn't Mm -hmm. see that the same way yeah in a way it kind of because I had to ask I was like so who is Figaro to everyone else again why is because because he came out in a beater like and his tattoos are showing yeah. and all this kind of I was like who is this you know <laughs> um and but of course backdrop by this very beautiful house and then you're like no he's a servant in the house oh right yeah. okay <laughs> so yeah in Either way, though, I still I had a great time at this show. Yes. Um, I, you know, I'm start I'm really kind of like starting to dig opera more and more, Colleen. Like I'm listening to Aria Code in my spare time. Oh, such <laughs> a great podcast. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm glad I, I this, like the symphony was was on. The music mm -hmm. is the music and the story in this opera is so lovely. Mm -hmm. I, I, I saw this performed at the Stats Opera in Vienna several years ago. Uh, I've seen it in other places, but like it's just it's timeless. There's 
there's a reason that it's popular. Yeah, yeah. If, if I'd say this would be a great first opera for someone who didn't know anything going in. Just like this is really enjoyable. It's funny. It's romantic. It's like, of course, ties up with a nice little bow in the end. Um, <laughs> all of that jazz. Um, okay. Well, so that was Marriage of Figaro. Um, it's running. Uh, it's running until it, it runs a couple of more performances. But this is coming out on the uh, on the first Sunday after opening. So um, it will. It, there's still a couple chances that you can catch it. It's running February 1st, February 4th, and February 7th. Right. So February February 4th and February 7th. Perfect. Um, so what we because we got to see the preview, we also got a special sneak peek um, at the season announcement for next year Edmonton mm. Opera's season. So um, so what's what's coming? What do, what do we want to see? In October, uh, they're featuring Puccini's La Boheme classic uh and in early february will they, they're welcoming mozart's cosi fan tutti also by mozart and the librettist Le dupont um and then in march they'll be featuring donanzetti's anne boleyn which i'm unfamiliar with so i'm excited about that yeah that one sounds interesting because the story of anne boleyn is of course you know like a very powerful powerful woman another of you know good old king henry's wives <laughs> <laughs> we've seen shows about them before Indeed. um and la boheme of course um, I will have had a couple chances to see already because Mercury Opera has done it. Um, well, we saw it, as you mentioned, at Chez Pierre earlier. Um, but they're also remounting it at the Rice Theatre in the Citadel this season, coming up in March. Um, so La Boheme is another one that we're getting super familiar with. Um, and Cosi Fantucci, this is one that I don't know anything about, but I get the idea that you might. <laughs> so um, so Mozart and DuPont, the, who's the librettist for um, for Marriage of Figaro, teamed up for John, Don Giovanni and Cosi Fantucci. It's sort of a trio, the three of them. And it's sort of a dream team because they're all like for three operas that these two put together to be so famous and so well loved. Um, it, it's, yeah, Cosi Fantuti is a delightful, whimsical com comedic opera. It's just delightful. Oh, cool. All right. Well, um, yeah, so that's 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 your I don't get it sneak peek for Edmonton Opera's next season, everyone. Haha, <laughs> you heard it here first. Woo. <laughs> um, all right. Well, and thank you so much, Colleen, for um, hanging out for this matinee of the opera and and with the kids. It was great. Oh, yeah. <laughs> opera in the afternoon. Loving it. Thank you to Colleen for um, uh, guesting and, and coming to see Marriage of Figaro. Uh, it was great. It was great to get a little sneak peek at the next season as well. Um, I wanted to say that we're going to, in the show notes, we're going to throw to Aria Code, the podcast that we talked about a little bit um, during the review. Aria Code has a really fantastic episode on the marriage of Figaro and the Aria Dove Sono. Um, and the guest, one of the guests for that episode is Dan Savage talking about infidelity and forgiveness. Um, it's one of the, I love the opera uh, or the podcast Aria Code. You'll learn about opera. It's a great episode about the marriage of Figaro. So we'll put a link to that uh, in the show notes. Sweet. Yeah. Um, but for now, Paul, uh, before we go into... Um, Happy birthday, baby Jay, mm -hmm. and the Crucible. Yeah. How about we? How about we do an ad? Sure. This episode is brought to you by Telus World of Science, home of the Canadian debut of Marvel Universe of Superheroes. 
2019 marks the 80th anniversary of Marvel, and Edmonton is the first and so far only Canadian city to host this exhibit, which features more than 300 artifacts, including costumes, props, and interactive elements that bring the Marvel Universe to life. Travel through the mysterious mirror dimension of Doctor Strange, digitally transform into Iron Man, and learn the story of Marvel and its influence on visual culture. Get your tickets for Marvel Universe of Superheroes today at tellusworldofscienceedmonton.ca. So, happy birthday, baby J. Happy birthday, baby J. Um, is a production by Shadow Theater um, that is currently running. Um, it was written by uh, Nick Green, who is like a, a former Edmontonian who now lives in Toronto, and uh, is about uh, uh, is about a, a birthday party. I guess I guess let's start there. It's about um, this group of adults who um, two of which have a child. A, a two-year-old who they are raising without gender, baby Jay, and they have sort of uh, decamped to the cottage um, with some of their closest adult friends um, and, and one of their partners uh, to, to celebrate this birthday. Kind of. <laughs> yeah, it kind of, I mean, we've seen sort of, we've seen productions and even films like this before where there's like an adult birthday party or an anniversary party or something like that where everyone kind of gets trapped together they all get a little drunk or high or something um and they start really telling each other how they feel (laughs) it's a a drunk like adult play it's a drunk cottage play yeah baby j makes very little uh very few appearances in the show in fact there is no baby um actor or anything like that or or even there's one scene where they all kind of like Coup at a light. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I think um uh where to begin? Um I think with with this show, um, it sort of uh proposes that it's going to talk about sort of um this political correctness and the society we're we're bringing our children up in and what does that mean? Um and it uh feels like the production sort of speaks it in that old man voice of like, what is this? Um <laughs> A little bit because I, I feel like it never really talks about those things in a meaningful way. It sort of uses them as a as a prop to have these five people be terrible to each other. Well, well, sort maybe give us a little bit of a of a synopsis about um, the the content of the show. Why are they all talking about this and getting all up in arms? <laughs> in sorry, in what way? Because we haven't really talked about what Baby J is. Oh. Yeah, okay. or 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 who his parents are and what they're doing to, to them. Right. <laughs> um, so we have uh, uh, Louise and Gary are the parents of Baby J. Um, Louise is kind of a uh, is a as one of the there are spoilers. Just let's put that in here um, oh, to yeah. talk about some some basic things. But um, uh, Gary and Louise. Gary is a professor, like a tenure professor, at a university, uh, talking about a lot of like. Um, a lot of these sort of thoughts and issues um, in in the world, and and Louise is a is a former student of his who he's married, um, and then and then some of their friends, and so they're uh, have, are celebrating with them. Uh, Louise uh, has is really um, defined by in this play, uh, baby making baby J genderless. Um, and, and if there's an overall sort of track to, to what they, what the, uh, ideas of the play seem to be, it's that, um, these people are pretty terrible people and they use other things as a way of hiding how terrible they are, um, to each other and to the world, uh, to world at large. Mm-hmm. And so, so yeah, so baby J 
Um, yeah, we don't, as you said, we don't really meet. Um, we get a couple uh, glimpses of Baby J's life in like the like the playgroup of of young mothers and 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 parents who 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 raise Baby J, uh, or who are sort of around. And then um, and then yeah, how everyone feels about Baby J here. Mm-hmm. Um, which again, but it, it doesn't really ever dive into actual meaningful thoughts on, on a lot of that. Yeah, that's kind of, you know, all of the promotion and preamble about the show sort of posits that it is about this couple who are trying to raise their child gender free. And there's not a lot of commentary on on how they do that or what that means for them or for the kid. The, the, um, Louise in the mother's role does end up um, talking about how it impacts how the, the other mothers treat her in playgroup. Mm-hmm. Um, but she's also kind of like putting that up against telling really gossipy and kind of catty stories right. about about the other moms and the way they do things. And it just, I don't know, there was something that, you know, it didn't allow you to feel uh, sorry for her or that her wokeness was, you know, cool or justified. Like it was just seemed like it was kind of like for the sake of something in the plot they're like you know like i mean they could have been doing anything like super woke in their lives that that you know everyone would have had opinions about i guess but yeah in i don't know i mean the the performances were great they were they were dedicated i really enjoyed matthew hulshoff in his role as one of the um the friends who's invited to the party who brings his new partner along um, and, uh, and, you know, Matthew Halshoff, I think, um, and Patricia Sarah too, uh, their roles really actually, I feel like landed the comedy that was intended in the play, yeah. maybe. Yeah. And I think, um, yeah, the play sort of does what it's accusing its characters of doing. I feel like it's sort of like treats, um, these topics, um, and, and the idea of sort of transness and, and gender, um, uh, kind of in a in a clumsy and and lopsided way that really just lets them like talk about this other thing. And you could say that's the point that it's really about like look at these people who are like pretending to be very um, of the aware and and progressive, um, but uh, but look at how like uh, terrible they are to each other and 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 to their world. But then but then yeah, then it could have been about anything. This was just like a, an in to discuss this. And then when it does sort of come up in near the climax of the play and, and we start talking more about these things, it doesn't really handle it in a, in a, in a meaningful or, or satisfying way. Um, we're just sort of left being like, hmm, they, they, they treat this baby like a prop, um, yeah, which they yeah. do. And again, I think that is the point um, they're trying to make, but I, then it's like, well then, I don't know. Uh, for all of the talk about like diving into political correctness and like what uh what how we're raising our children it's like well it's not about this this child um we're just using that as a way of um having a drunk cottage play (laughs) (laughs) and and you said something really interesting and we were sort of walking out of it you were talking about sort of the tone and and that like maybe it would have landed differently if it had been a like more um satirical or more over the top in sort of how everything was played yeah like I felt it was one of those plays that kind of walked out of and I was just like whoa that felt really serious in the end and I don't know that I don't know that it worked as well I I felt like it should if it were if if it were trying to not take itself so seriously maybe they um maybe it would have landed with a little bit more kind of um 
optimism or hope in the end because in the end you walk out of this show and you feel like well they're all just like awful nobody learned anything um <laughs> and and you feel bad because yeah. you damn that poor baby <laughs> yeah i felt um and sort of uh I, I don't think i need to say the the details of it but in sort of the last scene i felt like it really like um didn't it just sort of was like ah oh, god ugh. i feel like yeah, these characters haven't. There's been no change. There's been no growth. There's been no, and there's there's no understanding of the issues that this play is talking about, or not um, in a meaningful way. We're just like watching this character sort of be like, um, uh, having reached like a low point, maybe one of the characters, but they're just sort of going through this list. Um, but you're kind of like, oh, hmm, um, I don't, no, I don't, know, I don't know if this works. I don't know if this this is landing here. Yeah, I think in that final scene, um, you know. I think that Louise maybe does get a little a little bit of comeuppance. Um, she has a she has a pretty big freak out um, with with how it all kind of goes down at the end. Um, but there is kind of like this sweet moment of her and baby Jay, and she's she's talking about she she's listing something, but I and I don't really want to give away what it is. But it kind of goes to show how much a parent and their ideas can imprint on a child without that child having any agency at all. Um, like my parents named me Fonda, <laughs> and that has influenced my life in a number of ways. Sure. <laughs> um, and I think that, you know, this um, this idea of baby Jay and not knowing um, anything about them or who they are and not, you know, by the end it kind of, they, they start forming you start forming ideas about Baby J because of the way their parents behave a little bit, and um, and I don't know if that's a good thing, but it's it's a note, I guess. Yeah, and I guess yeah, it just felt like, um, but it felt like we could have seen this play about terrible people about anything about that anything could have been our sort of MacGuffin into into that world, and I think to like uh, tie it to to gender and um, and today when there's lots of progressive thought on that and also a lot of response to that progressive thought that isn't um, so progressive or kind and is very mean um, to just sort of like have it as like our in um, feels like shallow I guess I, I walked away feeling like it was like a, a shallow dive into um, deep waters or like interesting mm. waters with a lot of um, nuance that I don't think got got delivered here like I think we live in a world where um, gender and our understanding of gender is both like expanding and is also like very much under a microscope um, in uh, both both good ways, but often, especially in the world, like ways of like uncertainty and, and people being fearful and uh, harmful to those who are sort of expanding and exploring gender. Um, uh, so I, I think it's... Um, I guess I guess to to use the that as like a, a MacGuffin for a play to sort of just like talk about terrible people when it's such a prevalent um, thing today where people of um, non-gender conforming um, uh, 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 where people who are non-gender conforming or um, don't fall into sort of our traditional understandings of gender or are even just questioning those traditional understandings of gender. Um, often come under so much fire and attack um, and and are met with such fear and, and hatred and division. And so so for a play to just like sort of have that as like, uh, yeah, we'll use this just to talk about a bunch of terrible, uh, terrible folks um, without meaningfully like engaging in that material or sort of like talking about some of that side of it. Um, yeah, it doesn't, uh, it feels, feels a bit uh, uh, thin. 
Yeah, it, it felt a little glib. Mm-hmm. Like they were, you know, yeah, using it as 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 a way to just sort of like allow these people to say awful things to each other. And yeah, it didn't it didn't really go. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Speaking about uh, people and how they treat each other. Right. <laughs> um, so I uh, other play that I got to catch this week was The Crucible, um, done by the McEwen uh, Drama Department. And um, I have never seen a McEwen drama production before, but The Crucible, of course, great American play. Arthur Miller also wrote Death of the Salesman. I've never had a chance to see a live production of The Crucible, so I was kind of excited about it. I've never read it. <laughs> no? We studied Death of a Salesman. That's um, oh. our one Arthur Miller in school. Yeah. Well, um, so speaking of, uh, I guess, you know, kind of the idea of, of, of hunting people down for for bad ideas or for ideas that aren't the same as yours. Um, The Crucible is sort of a well-known allegory for McCarthyism. It is placed in Salem in the 1700s about the actual um, true historical witch hunts that happened there. Um, And all of the characters in The Crucible are actually found in historical record in some way or another. but Miller wrote it as a, as a, an allegory about the McCarthy trials and the sort of like the, um, the, the hunt for communists. And once communists were found, the um, need for those people to name their friends and to um, bring everyone else sort of like right. under this communist umbrella were and you ever go. A card carrying member of the Communist Party. Yes, yes. Maybe I was. Um, in any case, uh, so. They do this. Uh, they do the show in the theater lab at Allard Hall, which is a black box theater. It's set up in a galley style. I thought that the set design was actually really brilliant. Um, uh, done by Scott Spidell and Jose Chartrand. Um, the, the set is built so that the audience looks like they're sort of in jury boxes uh, down the galley of the of the stage. And in the middle, the action is happening. And it really does look like sort of, you know, like Salem in, in the 1700s. They have these big sort of like railroad ties making kind of like uh, you know like the walls and barn of the set but you can see the guts of the theater on the sides too um, as they uh, as they're making their entrances and exits and the the clincher is that the the ceiling of the set is also made of these like huge um, wooden ties um, that that uh, rise and lower sort of so it looks at some points like you're in a courtroom or in a church or in a house or even in a basement um, and it really it really I think lent to lent to the sense of setting for the play um, yeah kind of one of the coolest sets I've seen in a while for a, for a small show sure. how does that um, allegory play out in the crucible Fonda how do you what uh, what do you get the sense of uh, Arthur Miller is saying about McCarthyism <laughs> and in sort of um, in how it plays out in this trial well, that it's fairly easy to jump on a zeitgeist and like a sense of hysteria or fear in people about, um, you know, about pretty much anything. Um, what happens in the play is that there's um, there's uh, a number of young women. Um, and I'll say that the female performances in this show, um, all portraying the young women, were actually fairly well suited um, for the actors, the characters. They were um, like kind of of the right age. And their hysteria was just actually really fantastic. Amber Borotzik was helping out with the movement. Um, so you could see you could see some interesting um, contemporary movement influence um in there but so what happens in the crucible is that there's um 
there's a group of young women. Um, you know, it starts out with someone someone who is ill and uh, and a proctor, and you know he's he's freaking out that that one of his charges is 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 not well. Um, and it's revealed that all of these young women were dancing in the woods naked and um, and obviously doing something, if not witchcraft, it, for sure. So um, what happens? The rest of the show sort of goes through this um, because there was this sort of there was this witch hunt happening at the time. Right. This is the it is very easy as soon as someone is doing something a little bit strange or someone gets sick or anything like that. It's very easy for someone else to point the finger and say witchcraft. Right. Um, so what so what happens in the show? Um, it's revealed that Abigail um, or yeah Ab- the young character of Abigail who's sort of leading this legion of young women in their witch like hysteria or, or the hysteria that um, it seems like they've been influenced by the devil or black sure. magic in some way because they're all sort of like twitching around and, and obviously something something has happened but really what it is is that it's this kind of um, like a charismatic leader going on and and leading them through and saying you know it's very easy to get our enemies away from us by saying you know that's a witch or she's a witch or anyone who says that we're lying well you're you're guilty of witchcraft too um so the thing about abigail though is that she's had this affair with um john proctor who's sort of like the the main character, the main guy. Um, and he and uh, Abigail, as a young woman, you know, she's uh, jealous and whatever of his actual wife, Elizabeth Proctor. So she accuses Elizabeth of witchcraft. Um, the crux of the play, as, as the action goes on, is that John now is trying to get everyone off and say that these women are lying. Um, and it turns out to be a very difficult thing to do because uh, the hysteria really kicks up a notch and um and i will say that um performance by uh um abigail oh i'm sorry sorry. there there's a a cast member named abigail as well who plays elizabeth proctor who is very good um but maya baker plays the character of abigail williams who is the one leading this kind of legion um maya baker fantastic performance um also the performance of the character of mary um who is the proctor's sort of um serving maid uh played by um kilo ledesma if i'm pronouncing that wrong i'm terribly sorry but also mary's performance was really great um So, yeah, it, you know, in the end, it also kind of feels like really bad and sad because um, the hysteria continues and it doesn't really get any better. And, you know, John Proctor gets hanged in the end. Um, No spoilers. Yeah. Yeah. 50 year old play. And the actual historical man, John Proctor, did get hung, (laughs) did get hanged or uh, and uh, died during the Salem witch trials. Um, So anyway, I. It was great to kind of see this like classic script done really well, uh, big big cast, um, yeah, and just kind of that that idea of sort of you know like hopelessness about you know when there is when there is just this like big witch hunt going on, um, and and people are people are not really seeing eye to eye or, you know, just kind of like getting up in arms even about something that doesn't really seem justified. Um, 
in certain ways, I was thinking of Baby J a little bit. And I was just kind of like, well, what is this sort of like, you know, like age of Twitter wokeness? Like, does this have any kind of bearing on what, you know, what they're talking about in the crucible with this just kind of like, you can just accuse someone of something mm-hmm. and then they are then they're damned forever like they're gonna hang whether they're a witch or not you know <laughs> like, well i feel like i feel like that's always like the the fear that's put on that sort of situation is just like i'm gonna get canceled mm-hmm. it's like uh, like no most of the time no like unless you've done something that is quite heinous like um uh you're gonna be held accountable for your actions and there are like there are some things you know john ronson's book so you've been publicly shamed mm-hmm. points out a lot of the times when it's like right um, this uh, social media, the way it's structured, is sort of set up to give this big pylon effect where suddenly like a thousands or millions of people can comment on something that was really maybe like didn't need to go beyond a certain circle in terms of like mm. how much comment or response it goes. But because um, tweets can pick up steam and, and go viral and, and things like that and messages can do the same and all of that stuff, we do end up in this like... Uh, situation sometimes where it's like, wow, that got that got out of hand quick. That escalated very quickly. Yeah, yeah. And then it can also kind of like, I mean, you know, Donald Trump is famous for using the words witch hunt all the time um, because, you know, obviously he feels that he's so freaking hard done by. (laughs) Um, But, you you know, yeah, there's this. It was just kind of interesting to see the crucible uh, done and just kind of like thinking about it in that way. Yeah. What is the effect of when people use, um, you know, like in Abigail's in Abigail's sort of like motivation? It's never you never really lead on if they know that they're doing it really consciously or not. Um, This this sort of like pretending. Um, But then, you know, there is. There is this sort of like um, the reason that John Proctor sort of comes out as the hero in the end is because he doesn't name anybody else. And he finally and he doesn't say he doesn't lie or confess the way that he's been pressured to. And I think that in a lot of these kinds of situations, the the easiest thing for someone to do is instead of like having the having the blame laid on them or, you know, the finger pointed at them is to point it at someone else. Um, And that's kind of what that whole kind of like McCarthy reference is, is about the naming of other people um, who are, you know, who are also just doing this, whatever it is. yeah. In any case, maybe like is is great to see this play. It made me made me think a lot. <laughs> yeah, that's a nice thing about like the the studio programs or like the 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 McEwen program and the university program is like those are really the places you get to see some of these big classic plays. It's very rare that one of the other theaters in town will produce something like this. Mm. Um, uh, so so it's great to see that and have that opportunity. Yeah, and also even such a big cast in a, like a fairly intimate space. Um, yeah, I think I think they pulled this off really well. I hear that it's it's selling really well because of the way that the um, seating is set up. There there's probably not a ton of tickets left. I've heard that some performances are selling out. So, um, but yeah, catch it if you can. The Crucible at uh, at McEwen. It is an interesting parallel between the two plays of like one sort of leans into the consequences of its subject matter of this McCarthyism that it's like, um, uh, yeah, that it's sort of like about um, and one does not one sort of uses it to talk about something else, uses mm. it in, in to talk about something else. And mm-hmm. I think um, the tone of reviews is evident and which is maybe more effective or feels more uh, an authentic exploration of an idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah, I guess that's what I'll say about the crucible. It seemed like an authentic, like a actually really authentic examination of what they were what they were trying to do, and I appreciate it. Um, especially with classic plays, because sometimes they don't hold up. Is the other thing like Mm -hmm. one thing about getting to see them sometimes is you're like, ooh, that has not aged well, or like this doesn't really land today the way it would have like thirty years ago or fifty years ago or whatever. So it's nice to hear some do. Yeah, true. Go Arthur Miller. Next up, here's an ad. This episode of I Don't Get It is brought to you by Unit B Coworking. Unit B is a multi-company co-working space located in the historic McKinney Building in downtown Edmonton, and it's focused on helping people pursue their passions. Join a tight-knit group of freelancers, startups, and established organizations all dedicated to getting things done. Along with desks and offices, Unit B offers members access to its podcasting studio, meeting spaces, kitchen, Wi-Fi, and the usual office amenities. Book a tour today at unitb.com. Okay, Paul, we have some news bits and everything to get through, but how about we chat about the Citadel's uh, upcoming season? Because they dropped that earlier on, like, last Monday. Yeah, Yeah. Monday. Um, Cool, the highlights, what stands out. Um, Nine to five. Uh, Maybe this is just because um, I've been listening to the podcast, Dolly Parton's America, but uh, to see that come up was like, great. cool. It's like great times for Dolly Parton and Jane Fonda right now and and Lily Tomlin. Like they've all just like been so fantastic and awesome. And like Dolly uh, Dolly has a Netflix thing on now, too. Like there's a there's a whole resurgence of that. So nine to five, the musical um, that's in summer or like ending off the season in 2021. Um, What else do we got? Uh, Um, For me, the wolves is maybe the the thing I'm most excited about. Uh, It's a co-production with the Maggie Tree, who are a wonderful local company. Um, And it's about an elite girls soccer team uh, facing tough matches and tougher questions. Um, yeah, directed by Vanessa Saburin. Um, uh, and yeah, it's like, uh, I, this play is sort of being, making its way around, being produced in different places. And so, uh, I'm excited to, to see it and, mm-hmm. and see what that, uh, what shape it takes in, in those shared hands of the Citadel and the Maggie tree. Yeah. Yeah. That one, that one really kind of piqued my interest too. Um, the other, I, a brimful of Asha, I thought was kind of a, like a good, neat choice. I've, I've, since I've heard of it, I've kind of wanted to see it. It's about, um, uh, a mother and son and she's she's trying to marry him off and it's just wonderful um a thousand splendid sons also um based on the novel by Khaled Hosseini um the the kite runner is the other famous novel right. um the citadel produced a version of a while ago but has sort of been produced as a play in in somewhat recent year yeah yeah so a thousand splendid sons i feel should be pretty cool there's also an adaptation of jane eyre yeah, which i think yeah. sounds really interesting and the sound of music <laughs> Uh, yes. rolling on through uh, which you know uh, you know the Citadel has the 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 resources to really um, do a big musical like that in like full splendor so that'll be that'll be a thing to see yes yes how uh, many of the Von Trapp children will John Uliot play <laughs> all of them all Two maybe them? I don't know <laughs> um, also uh, another musical uh, pump up the volume mm-hmm. um, which uh, when Daryl Clorin was introduced 
introducing it, he mentioned something about 90s nostalgia. And I was like, oh, my God, they're going to do Jagged Little Pill. And then it wasn't Jagged Little Pill. So, um, but yeah, pump up the volume. Of course, everyone knows the Christian Slater movie. Um, we'll see how that goes, because it's a new it's not a jukebox musical. It is a, a, a new musical. Um, I'm, unfortunately, I forget the composer and writer's name. But, um, but yeah, uh, all the same. I'm sure the tone will be very 90s nostalgia. Mm-hmm. Um, cool. What else is going on? They have um, a the, Christmas Carol's back. Yeah. And the first play that they have up, uh, I'm interested in because I really love the movie. Um, Network right. is the first play that will be um, in October, I believe, sure. of 2020. Um, and yeah, uh, it's one of the first um, theaters to produce it uh, post-Broadway. Uh, did really well on Broadway when Brian Cranston was in it. So right. we'll see how it does here. I wonder if they'll get Brian Cranston. I, I doubt it, but uh, you never know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then uh, Bears is coming back. Matthew McKenzie's um, play. Elvis the Musical is oh, sort of their summer musical. Seems like something Daryl Clorin has added is this like summer musical, like they did Ring of Fire this year, and now it's um, mm-hmm. now it's Elvis. Yeah, he mentioned when he was introducing the Elvis musical that they did some surveying of the audience that saw the Johnny Cash musical earlier um, this year, mm-hmm. um, and something like eighty percent, like huge number of the audience were people who had never been to the Citadel before. Wow. So it is kind of like summer is a little bit of a cash cow just kind of like kind of like the christmas carol so you know <laughs> yes it is so so that's the season yeah i feel um yeah uh lots of big like big things it feels mm-hmm. um like a couple a couple big musicals um a couple big adaptations um yeah yeah big a big old season yeah yeah it'll be it it, it will be interesting of course we still have like half the season left (laughs) so we'll see more of them um as it goes we have um okay moving on yes all right we have some updates uh we're going to be doing a couple of live i don't get it episodes one from the chinook series on february 15th um i'll be hosting and moderating a panel called That's Me in the Spotlight. Um, it is about um, artists who use uh, lived experience uh, in their performance creation. Um, and so there's a couple of great artists on that panel, um, Alan Morgan and Nasra and uh, Chris Dodd, who just won a huge prize um, from Canada Council, the Guy La Liberté Prize. Um, he won for um, his work in the Deaf Performing Arts and Deaf Theatre. Oh, uh, $20,000, Chris Dodd. Um, and, and largely um, the, the his work in creating the Sound Off Festival was cited as as one of the one of the big things behind that. Yeah. Um, another the other thing that we wanted the other live event. Sorry. Other live event is on March 1st from the Skirts of Fire Festival. Um, we're going to be uh, doing a panel on their main stage show called The Blue Hour. And um, our friends at Skirts of Fire are offering $5 off tickets to that show. Um, so I don't get it. Listeners can purchase tickets um, from the Fringe Theater box office and use the code PANEL5 that spell out the words PANEL and 5 um, at checkout. And we'll include the link to that in our show notes as well. Awesome. Another really cool thing that happened this week was the launch of the Alberta Queer Calendar Project. Right. Um, tell us a little bit about that, Fonda. What, uh, what, what is that? And, and uh, what is the calendar? What should we be adding to our calendars? <laughs> so it's a new play that gets released every month in podcast form. Um, and it's by uh, each each. Uh, each month is a new play written by an Alberta playwright, focusing on some aspect of you know queer 
a queer experience or whatever. Or, world. Yeah, yeah. And so um, some playwrights that are featured, I know Elena Bellier um, is one of them. Um, Liam's, Liam Salmon, I believe, is the one, the the first playwright to be featured. Um, yeah, and so uh, they're going to drop a new play every month in uh, in podcast format, so which is kind of cool because you can listen to them anytime. Right. Check it out, uh, AlbertaQueerCalendar.ca. Um, it's it's produced as a combination of what it the what it is podcast and cardiac theater. Yeah, yeah. So you know, go go read some more plays. Uh, what's coming up, Fonda? What's what's this season hold for the next month or so? Oh my goodness! So, um, Theater Network opened the Society for the Destitute presents Titus Buffonius this week. Um, that's running at the Roxy on Gateway all the way till February sixteenth. Right. Uh, the Marriage of Figaro, uh, Edmonton Opera's production, as February fourth and seventh. The Invisible Agents of Ungentlemanly Warfare is um, it's a Catalyst Theater production running at the Citadel's McLeod stage from February 4th to 23rd. Noises Off is a playing at the Mayfield Dinner Theater from February 4th until March 29th. And that big old Chinook series is running at the ATB Arts Barn starting on February 6th through the 16th. Mm-hmm. Uh, then we have The Crucible, as mentioned, at McEwen Theater Arts, uh, the Theater Lab at Allard Hall until February 8th. Uh, Every Brilliant Thing is in previews at the Citadel now, and that runs until February 23rd. Shakespeare's Dog is playing at the Tim's Center for the Arts from February 7th until the 15th. And then um, Secondhand Dances for the Crude Crude City um, is a Mile Zero presentation done by Jerry Marita. It was part of the uh, Brian Webb season yeah. last year, I believe. The Prairie Dance Circuit. Yeah, and, uh, and so that's running at the Hilltop Pub on February 7th and 8th. Great. I think um, that's amazing location because uh, it is like uh, it's a play about punk music and sort of the state we enter when we when we, uh, you know, are at. Uh, at a loud show and it envelops us and so to see it in a theater is one thing but there's like a divide between the audience i think to see it at a pub will be like perfect for the tone nice nice so yeah um so there's no excuse there's lots to see everyone um enjoy your your february it's february now thank god january is over oh my god it felt long uh go see some shows bye I Don't Get It is a member of the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATB. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or check us out on albertapodcastnetwork.com or the CKUA radio app. I Don't Get It is recorded on Treaty 6 territory in Edmonton, Alberta, in the Edmonton Community Foundation's podcast studio. Our theme music is Mountain Time by Ghibli, and you can find more of Ghibli's music by going to ghibli.bandcamp.com. I Don't Get It is produced by Andrew Paul, Fonda Mithrush, and Paul Blenov. Sit here, thank you. I love you.